How y'all doing? That's pretty lame. I know we got masks on. We can't talk, right? So uh, anyway, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with uh, the Greenhouse, which is our uh, college age and our young adult ministry. I specifically want to give them a chance to give a shout out. Thank you. Um, uh, I, um, I specifically kind of, tar- you know, kind of oversee the, the college segment of that, and uh, Dave Schubert, my co-pastor, gets a chance to have the privilege of overseeing the uh, young adult part of that. And so if you're in that demographic, I'd love to meet you. I know Dave would love to meet you as well afterward. And if you're new with us, I'd love to meet you um, after. If you want to come and meet me down in the bullpen here, um, I would be privileged to get a chance just to say hi to you. Um, we're going to take a moment and, and pray for our time, and then we're gonna, we'll dive in. And um, why don't you just uh, bow with me real quick here before the Lord. God, we give thanks to you today, for today. We thank you for the, the beautiful weather you've given us. We thank you for just the chance to meet together as a body, as a, as a church family. And um, God, we pray that today would be, again, way more than just words. God, we always want to ask that you would intervene in, in the teaching and the preaching of your word, that you would make your word come alive, that people would, um, including myself, we would be hearers and doers. We would hear your word and we would obey God. And so um, we look to you during this time. We ask that you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us, uh, uh, our, our senior pastor, Mark, has been in this parable series for several months now. And um, he's getting a breather. And while he's uh, taking a break, I, the last week I started a series looking at a letter in the New Testament called Philippians. And uh, Paul wrote this letter from a prison in Rome. It wasn't his first rodeo, though. He actually, as a way of learning more about what Philippi was like, there's a, a story connected in the book of Acts about what happened there as Paul was helping start this church. Paul and Silas ended up in prison after they cast a demon out of a slave girl who followed them around for days. And she just cried out over and over again, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And she did that over and over and over and over again. So much so that the, that the apostle Paul the godly man that he was, it says that he became greatly annoyed with her. And so he cast this demon out of her. Well, her owners were not happy because the spirit of divination was a cash cow for them. So no demon meant no money. And this, this is what they said. These, this is the, these are the actual words. They said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice or accept. And so Paul and Silas, they were beaten. They were thrown into kind of the inner part of the prison and then they had their feet put in stocks, fastened in the stocks. And so this is what Philippi was like. It was a Roman colony full of retired soldiers known for its patriotic nationalism. And so that's why Paul and Silas experienced resistance when they announced uh, that Jesus was the true king of the universe. Because what they were saying is that Caesar isn't a God. Jesus is the, only, is the one and only true God. And lots of people didn't like that. And so after Paul left Philippi, the church experienced resistance and some persecution, but it continued to grow and thrive in that city. And so at one point, when Paul was in prison in Rome, they sent this guy named Epaphroditus to Rome to meet with Paul and to bring Paul support. And that's when Paul gave Epaphroditus this letter that we currently have in our New Testament. 
I titled this series, Joy Regardless, because when I read this letter, I see how God has transformed Paul into a person who follows Jesus regardless of his circumstances and has joy regardless of whatever life throws at him. And I believe God wants us to move from people whose joy and peace and contentment are dictated by our circumstances to a people who, because of Jesus and his gospel message, have their joy and hope become unmovable and unshakable. Not circumstances-driven people, but regardless kinds of people. And so Paul moves on from his greeting, and the section we're going to look at today is literally out of this world. Like when I read the Bible, when I read this section, I'm literally blown away by what God's Word says. I'm challenged to the core when I read Paul's, what what, what he writes here, and and his, his attitude and his mindset cause my soul to sting. I don't know if you read the Bible and that happens to you, but that happens on a regular basis to me. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to paint a picture of something that has been severely misunderstood in the church today, and that's this. What does true fellowship look like? What is God's design and desire for his church? And so Paul's going to lay out four thoughts to help further define what true Christian fellowship is all about. And if you have a Bible, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And this is what Paul writes. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And his first thought is this. He says, I have you in my mind. Now, does it strike you that Paul was thinking about others? Like, in in the course of your day, do you spend time thinking about other people? The average person has between 12,000 thoughts and 70,000 thoughts a day. I kind of wonder, where do I fall in there? Am I kind of on the shallow end of thinking or on the deep end of thinking? I don't know about you, but it kind of got me thinking about just how much do I think in general? Um, I know that we think a lot about ourselves. There's a, a country song that Toby Keith wrote, and it's, it says, I want to I talk about me. And so it's a kind of a common theme that we see in, in our world is that we like to think about ourselves. I read an article this week that pointed to three research studies done over the past 20 years, and all of them pointed to this truth. We think way more about ourselves than we do about other people. Even when we try to be others-oriented, it's still difficult to not make it about us. An old quote from, from, a, from Bette Midler from a movie called Beaches, which probably most of you have maybe never heard of, maybe some of you have. My wife said that she watched it every time she had a sleepover with um, a bunch of teenage women or young, young women. Um, but this is what Bette Midler said. She said, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? And just the fact that Paul wasn't thinking about himself, I think it should prick our hearts a bit, especially with all he had going on. I mean, think about his circumstances. I mean, usually when things go sideways in our lives, our natural movement isn't to think about other people, right? I mean, when we suffer, we don't have our head up. We're we're able to to think, hey, I wonder how the other people in my world are doing right now. No way. When, when our circumstances are difficult, we tend to become kind of tunnel vision, head down kind of people where we only see ourselves and our suffering. But Paul was different. 
I mean, Jesus had so radically affected his life that his world became about Jesus and other people. And I, I read that and I thought, you know, I have lots of room for Jesus to work in my life. Paul, when he was thinking about these people, he would make his prayer with joy because he was reminded about the stories of the lives that were transformed by the gospel. I mean, what did Paul remember when he thought about the Philippians? If you were to go back and read Philippians, or, uh, Acts chapter 16, you could see what happened there a little bit. You'd, you'd hear about this woman named Lydia who was a worshiper of God. And when Paul met her, he and Silas helped introduce her to Jesus and she became a follower of Jesus. And not, it wasn't just her, but her entire household put their faith in Jesus. And then there was a story of the slave girl. I started our, our time off here this morning with, and the slave girl, the, story, the tradition has it that she became a follower of Jesus too. And then when Paul was in prison for casting the demon out of her, um, it says that he had a chance to lead the jailer and the jailer's household to faith in Jesus. And so story after story of God transforming people's lives through the gospel. And so when Paul remembered these people, he was filled with joy at the memory of what Jesus had done in their lives. Now, joy is a, a fascinating emotion. It's very different than happiness. I, I like uh, a definition I found on Compassion International's website. They said this. They said, happiness depends on external factors to exist. Happiness happens to us. Even though we may seek it, desire it, pursue it, etc., feeling happy is not a choice we make. Joy, on the other hand, is a choice purposefully made. Joy is an attitude of the heart and spirit present inside of us as an untapped reservoir of potential. Listen to this key difference. It's possible to feel joy in difficult times. Joy doesn't need a smile in order to exist, although it does feel better with one. Joy can share its space with other emotions. Sadness, shame, or anger. Happiness can't. Happiness is not present in darkness and difficulty. And that's where Paul was at when he wrote this letter. But joy never leaves it. Joy undergirds our spirits. It, it brings to life peace and contentment. And see, Paul could have joy sitting in a prison cell and part of his joy came from thinking about these people and remembering the incredible work God was doing in their lives. And so Paul starts this section off by talking about his, his memory of these people and that, the fact that he had them in his mind, which really leads to his second thought, and it's this. Paul was partnered together with these people for the sake of the gospel. He says this, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And he said this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that he was able to make his prayer with joy because of his partnership with these people in the gospel. That word partnership in the Greek might actually surprise you. It's the word koinonia, which means fellowship or participation. 
One definition I found said this about koinonia. It says, the essential meaning of this word embraces concepts conveyed in the English of community or communion or joint participation, sharing, and intimacy. So koinonia could also refer to, in some context, to a, a jointly contributed gift. So one of the most amazing examples of koinonia that I have ever heard about or read about came out of uh, this group of people that kind of banded together in, in a group called the Clapham Circle. Has anyone ever heard of that group before? Yeah, there was only one person in the first service that ever had. That's good. Um, the Clapham Circle was, again, was a group of serious Christians who actually moved into the same area together back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And they did that for the sake of being able to encourage each other. They were a part of not only making the gospel known, but they, they together kind of fought against the slave trade in England. And of those in this group, you might recognize the name William Wilberforce. He's one of my heroes. These families were a community together and they actually encouraged and sharpened each other to be focused in living their faith out. And especially as it related to fighting against this moral evil of their age. Now, before you think I'm sneaking something kind of political into this message, you got to realize that for Wilberforce and his comrades, even though they were very involved in politics, in fact, some of them were vocationally involved, they, they worked at, at, as part of parliament, they were excited about linking arms with anyone who wanted to abolish this horrible evil. It was way more than a political agenda. They would work with anyone who, who was serious about abolishing the slave trade, period. And when this, you read about this group, they were very focused around the gospel message and not just about bringing moral change to the world. It was normal for them to engage their friends in spiritual dialogue. Like they would have people over for dinner and, and they would engage them in conversation about Jesus. And they actually had a way of even saying this. They, they called these conversations uh, conversations of first importance because in their minds, nothing was as important as helping their friends come to faith in Jesus. And I think this mentality is often missing today in the church. But the reality is we are together for the sake of the gospel. And so a byproduct of being in a Jesus community is really a growing awareness and desire to help those outside of the faith come to faith in Jesus. Why? Because the gospel is the hope of our world. The gospel message isn't just a good option among many options. It's the only hope for a world without hope. And so what is being partnered in the gospel included? What does it look like? Well, Paul definitely sensed a partnership by the way this church stood with him financially throughout his ministry. But it was way more than that. They were linked arm in arm, standing side by side in the actual ministry of the gospel. They actually, they prayed together for those they were reaching out to. They were on mission together. Now let's stop there for a second and ask ourselves this question. How does this perspective line up with what we think about when we think about true Christian fellowship? Koinonia. You know, if we're honest, most of us think of fellowship as hanging out and friendship. And I do think that's part of what community is about. But according to Paul, it's way more than that. 
It's lives that are on mission together, standing arm in arm together for the sake of the gospel. Paul goes on, verse six. He says this. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know how often you guys get encouraging email. Um, it seems like most of the stuff that comes in is kind of just blah for me, but I got a real encouraging email about a month ago. It was from a guy named Kevin who I met way back in the summer of 1999. Believe it or not, I met Kevin at Myrtle Beach on a pier one evening. My wife and I, uh, we would go out and we would just engage people in the story of God. We would talk about spiritual things. We would engage people in the gospel. And that summer, we probably talked to, I don't know, four or 500 young people about Jesus. And Kevin and I, and we just kind of hit it off. And so we, we started a friendship and we would go and what we did is we spent time fishing together. At one point, I had a chance to share the gospel message with him about how Jesus came to rescue people from their sin, how Jesus initiated an invitation into the kingdom of God, a whole new life in a whole new world under the lordship of Jesus, how Jesus in his, in his life and his death and his burial and resurrection did everything necessary to make a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. How Jesus was the complete payment for our sin. And that someone who invites Jesus to pay for their sin, who receives him, who turns to him and trusts in him, that person becomes a child of God. And believe it or not, Kevin responded to the gospel message. That was way back in 1999. I mean, there was no social media. There was, uh, we had dial-up internet. Oh, Phones were still connected to the wall. You know, like back then we would go, hey, I'll call you. And people were like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Now you do this, people are like, what are you doing? It's weird. Hope he doesn't call me. And believe it or not, even in those prehistoric times, the gospel was the power of God for the salvation of anyone who would believe. And God began something in Kevin's life. Now fast forward to August of 2020 when I got this email and I found out that Kevin had spent a long time trying to find me. And he just had the wrong last name. For, for, that's okay though. And um, I, honestly, I lost track of him as well. I, I had thought about him. I had, I had talked to people about him. I, he kind of had this fascinating career that he was involved in. And, and I prayed for him on a, on a decently regular basis, but I didn't have any ongoing interaction with him personally. And Kevin shared with me how God worked in his life over these past couple of decades and how he'd been in and out of many churches, but how he kept moving forward and how God had allowed him to meet this beautiful Christian woman and had used this woman to help him kind of move forward in his faith. And now they're really involved in a, a local church where they live. And I was so encouraged because I just thought, that's just evidence for what we see here in the scriptures. It's just one story illustrating how God is the starter and the sustainer of our faith. God began a good work in Kevin. He began a good work in you. He began a good work in the Philippians' lives. And he will bring it to completion. And Paul knew this to be true of God. Paul knew this and he trusted that God was the one who 
did the heavy lifting, that we are the ones that plant and we're the ones that water. And God's the one that brings the growth. So he and his partners in the gospel there, which was the church in Philippi, they could do what they were responsible for and they could trust God for what only he could do, which is transforming the human heart. And so partnership in the gospel, being linked arm in arm together as comrades, that's part of what true fellowship is. That's what true koinonia is all about. Paul goes on and, he, he, and we get to his third thought and it's this. He says, I hold you in my heart. Verse seven, Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, this is the nature of the life of the church. It's way more than just sitting in a chair on a Sunday morning. And yet, if we're honest, many never experience it. Now to hold someone in your heart, that sounds, that sounds a little bit like a Hallmark card, doesn't it? But this, if, but to Paul, like this is what ministry and partnership in the gospel look like. This is what koinonia was. It was a, a depth of relationship. It's being known. It's more than just faces. I know this isn't pos- popular, but you know, today even uh, many churches actually try to create an environment where people come in and they're just, they just have anonymity. No one knows them. But I think this is the opposite of Jesus' desire for his church. And if you're here and you're just visiting, I don't want you to feel pushed into something. And if you're kind of just exploring the faith, I want you to feel the freedom just explore on. But know that the church is way more than a Sunday gathering. It's a family, it's, it's a body, and it's an army. And true fellowship is more than just shallow relationships, small talk. And so to hold someone in your heart means this. It means that you know each other. You know the good and the bad and the ugly about each other. It means that you're pulling for each other in prayer. It means that these relationships have a central function in your life. In other words, there's something more to them than just you see each other once a week. It means that you love each other and you have ways to demonstrate love for each other because you're together. The reality is you can't have that with lots of people. Even if New Hope was way smaller, you would still need to figure out ways to connect with even a smaller group of people. Just like Wilberforce had the Clapham Circle. Comrades, partners in the gospel. We need like-minded followers of Jesus that we band together with who have a common belief and a common desire to live that out. And at a very core level, we're like-minded because we hold the gospel message in a central way. 
Again, true fellowship is gospel-centered. Paul says it like this, the second part of verse seven. He says, for you are all partakers with me of grace. The bottom line in all of Paul's thinking is right here. We are together because of the gospel. Because we're partakers of grace. We receive grace the moment we respond to Jesus and we're spiritually reborn. And the reality is that we are constantly receiving grace. But the truth is without the gospel, none of this would exist. It's because all of us who are in Christ are partakers in grace, in the gospel. That's why we're together. And so Paul ends his third thought with verse eight. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The, the Greek for yearn is this word epipatheo, and it means to, to desire or to long for. And there's a word affection there. And in, the, and in the Greek, that word affection could mean affection, but it could also mean kind of inner parts. And so what Paul is really saying here is, I love you. It would be our way of saying like, I love you with all my heart. But in the Greek, what it would really be getting at is, I love you with all my guts. I don't know how that would sound, you know, if you said that to like the person you were going to marry. I love you with all of my guts. Now, even though Paul in this is talking about his love for these people, you have to stop and think that if Paul feels this way toward the Philippians, how great is Jesus's affection toward them and toward you. Often we have a kind of a twisted picture of how God thinks about us. And sometimes I think maybe we just think God tolerates us because he has to, because of Jesus. But if Paul loved these people with all his guts, and Paul's love is small compared to Jesus's, it just means Jesus is wild about you. Okay, so Paul's developed a clearer sense for us of what true koinonia looks like. It's way more than just friendship. It's a partnership in the gospel because of the gospel for the sake of others. And Paul's going to end our time with this fourth thought. True fellowship also involves praying for each other. Paul said it like this, verse 9. He said, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul's prayer is that they would grow in love, that they would abound in love. That's a good prayer to pray, right? I mean, that's a prayer that we need to pray for each other. If you pray, and you remember me, pray that I would grow in love. Paul also prayed that these people would grow in, in knowledge and discernment. Why? Well, because in that culture, there were lots of issues to navigate through. And it would take knowledge and discernment to be able to prove what is excellent. And you know what? Like, Philippi was a difficult place to live, but so is where you live. I mean, this culture is challenging to navigate. So we need to be praying for each other about how we navigate through 
our culture today. I mean, think about it. There's so much craziness going on. Think about what you and your kids have to navigate through today. I mean, gender identity. We never had to think about gender identity back when I was young. When I first came to faith in Jesus, it wasn't stuff we talked about. Political issues. I mean, everyone is so polarized. Racial tensions, you know, off the charts. I was reading an article this summer. I hope this doesn't disturb anyone in this room. Uh, maybe, maybe it'd be good if it, if it did. Um, but I, there's parts of our country now where polygamy is legal. You know, like issues of life and, and the sacredness of life. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Young people especially are bombarded by morally complex issues combined with a culture that's super intolerant of people who disagree with what it champions. I mean, it seems like every week some new moral issue is arising. And most of the time, I'm still processing the last issue. And it just keeps coming. And so we need to pray for each other. Paul's desire with prayer was so that those in the church would be holy and blameless at the return of Jesus. And Paul ends this section with this. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so the end result of koinonia is a church community that's built up, encouraged, and living a life on mission together to the glory and praise of God. And so what do we need to do with all this? I got, I got four quick applications for you. The first one is this. We need to find a way to connect with a smaller group of people, just like William Wilberforce did, to link arms with four or five other families for the sake of being able to encourage each other. And so behind the scenes, we are working on that as a church. We, we know that many are involved in small groups already, but we are trying to, to continue to develop small group leaders. And so our hope is in the not too distant future that we'll be, uh, we'll be able to invite more people into small groups. But don't wait until that happens. If you know other people, go ahead and link arms together. The second application would be, would be this. This pandemic has left more and more people scattered than ever before. And so we've got to find creative ways to meet together. Whether that means meeting outside or finding others who jive with your COVID preferences. Uh, being together as Christ followers, it's not optional. Jesus, he established his church because we couldn't do the Christian life on our own. And so I, as I was thinking about this application, I was thinking specifically about our online audience, but this would probably apply to those in this room as well. That my thought was that, you know, like as we went to online services, it got real easy just to maybe just stay in your house and, and engage over, uh, you know, your, the internet. But then what happens now that we're, we have a chance to be live again is that I think eventually sometime, sometimes, you know, that, that, that pattern or habit kind of gets old and you just kind of go, I don't know if I want to continue to do that. And so anytime we get out of a habit, sometimes it's hard to get back into a habit. But I think that it's essential that we make every effort to be together in some regard. Because the New Testament, it teaches that connecting with others is, is a way of keeping us sensitive to sin. 
And so if you're not connecting with others, don't be surprised if you start to become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what the New Testament warns against. Okay, the third application is we need to move toward a deeper sense of koinonia. So in that smaller network, see how you can stir each other up to live a life on mission together. A real simple first step is that you, you encourage everyone that you're connected with to develop some friendships with people who aren't Christians, who are outside of the church community. I mean, one of the things I find is that very few Christians actually have connections with those outside of the church. But if we're going to live a life on mission, we have to have friendships with people who aren't Christians. Okay, the last one is we need to seek to be vulnerable and real with other people. We need to, we need to, to, to we used to say back in the day, we need to take our masks off. And now all we do is put masks back on. But seriously, you be the one who is vulnerable. You be the one that goes to the deeper place, who actually shares your weaknesses and your struggles. Boast in them. That's what we're told to do in the New Testament. Boast in your weakness. So we learn that koinonia is far more than golfing or fishing together. Although those aren't bad things, especially if they allow us to go deeper in our relationships, building trust. We can use those to springboard off of what I believe Paul would want us to pursue which is the idea of linking arms with each other as we hold out the gospel to a lost and dying world, a partnership in the gospel, sharing with those who have needs. It's a dynamic community of faith where we support each other with prayer and encouragement and we're built up so that we can engage the world around us. Paul got it and Wilberforce got it. So much so that Jesus used both of them to turn their worlds upside down. Why couldn't God start the next great gospel movement through a community that you're a part of that lives out true koinonia? Why not? Let's pray. And Father, we, uh, we just thank you that when Jesus talked about the church, he said, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you have huge plans and desires for your church. Not only for the mission of the church, but for the impact the church has on your children. And God, I pray that you would move in us to be more engaged with true fellowship. That we would be willing to be inconvenienced, that we would allow you to have access to all of our life, our time, our schedule, etc. We thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would, would use it in a, in a powerful way in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, the invitation to meet you still stands. And if you don't want to meet me, have a great week.